Let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Oh God, our King, by the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the first day of the week, you conquered sin, put death to flight, and gave us the hope of everlasting life. Redeem all our days by this victory. Forgive our sins. Banish our fears. Make us bold to praise you and to do your will, and steal us to wait for the consummation of your kingdom on the last great day. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, as you may have surmised from the screen and from that opening collect, today we come to the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, and to the account of Jesus' resurrection, the story of that very first Easter. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. Let's go ahead and read through the first 15 verses of Matthew chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Last week when we started our study of this final section of Matthew's gospel, I directed your attention to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians and to something that Paul was saying to the church there in Corinth. I said that the Corinthian church was, in some respects, Paul's problem child. It was a church that he had established. Uh, the church in Corinth was a church that was under tremendous pressure, pressure from the secular culture to begin compromising some of the fundamental beliefs of the gospel. Uh, one of those, of course, was the resurrection. The resurrection not only of Jesus Christ, uh, but the resurrection of individual believers at the end of the age. And so Paul was writing 1 Corinthians to encourage them, to remind them of that faith which he had preached, first preached to them, and that gospel which they had first believed. So keep your finger there in Matthew and just skip to the right a little bit in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And let me just read these verses again, because Paul says this is the heart of the Christian message. 
And as I've said to you before, if you can grasp these truths, the truth that Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 15, whatever else you may not be able to understand in terms of the Christian gospel, you've really grasped the heart of the faith. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you were saved. Paul is reminding them of the fact that their lives had been transformed. He's reminding them of those wonderful days shortly after their conversion, when they were so excited about the message of the gospel and their new life in Christ. He said, it was this gospel that saved you, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. Unless, he says, all of that was for naught. Unless you have believed, he says, in vain. And here it comes, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Kephas, then to the twelve. There, Paul says, is the heart of the gospel. If you understand those events, namely that Christ died, that he was crucified on our behalf, for our sins, a vicarious atonement in our place. If you can understand that, if you can understand that it was a real death, that Jesus was buried in the tomb, if you can understand that on the third day he was raised, he said, that is the gospel that saves. There may be many other things, as I said, that you do not understand, that you do not comprehend, many other things that will only come to light as you grow in your relationship with Christ. But Paul says, if you grasp that, that really is the heart of the Christian faith. And we come now to this most important aspect of all of that, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, some people have asked, which is more important, the death of Christ or the resurrection of Christ? I put these two events together. In other words, I don't necessarily see them as separate events. It's like two sides of the same coin. The resurrection, of course, is our hope. It's the keystone of our faith. The keystone in an arch is that stone which holds the entire structure together, and if you remove it, the entire thing falls apart in wreck and ruin. And there is a sense in which, yes, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the keystone without which Christianity cannot stand. But the tricky thing about a resurrection, somebody has to die first. And so Good Friday is just as important as Easter. But Paul is very clear, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is at the heart of our faith. If Jesus had simply died and not been raised, as wonderful as his gesture may have been, our condition would be no better. We would still be lost forever. So why is the resurrection so significant? The resurrection, Paul says, is of great importance, of first importance, because it is the seal on a number of very significant events that have direct impact on your life and on the life of really every individual in the world. The reason why the resurrection, Paul says, is at the heart of our faith is because, first of all, it is the seal on the existence of God. We're living in an age when many people are skeptical about such things. Uh, you remember that after the 9-11 attacks, there was a rise of a new atheism uh, that was very prominent in Europe, in Britain, and in the United States, led by people like Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett and people like that. 
who began to argue, they, they were really militant atheists. Uh, they weren't like a, a prior generation, people like Bertrand Russell that were sort of indifferent toward religion. They were actually antagonistic toward religion. Uh, they were evangelists for atheism. And they were arguing that nobody should believe in God. Well, Jesus of Christ, of course, went throughout all of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ancient world, preaching that there was a God, preaching the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, preaching that there is meaning and purpose in the universe precisely because the universe was created by a loving God. But Jesus' message is only true if he's been raised from the dead. Think about it. If Christ preached this message that there is a God who called all things into existence, that the biblical narrative is actually true, that there is a God who called all things into existence, not because he needed it, but simply because he loved the world. He called all things into existence. He made mankind in his image, bestowed upon humanity a value and importance. We were made as a reflection of him and in his image and that God has been working out his saving purposes in history, and that one day he will set this broken, fallen world right and wipe away every tear from our eyes. That is a wonderful message. That is a message of hope in a world filled with confusion. But it is only true, you see, if such a God actually exists. And if Jesus Christ, who preached this message, was crucified and then raised to life again, then what that means is that, that God does exist. He is true, and there is hope in the universe. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a seal on the very existence of God, one of the most basic and fundamental things. Second of all, it's a seal on Jesus himself, on his deity. Jesus went throughout that ancient world, not only preaching a message that there was a God and a God who cared, a God who was interested in the plight of mankind, he also preached that he was the son of that God that he was the, the true reflection of the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. Jesus' claims were extraordinary. This was something that even his enemies could not deny. Even his enemies were astounded by Jesus' authority. The scribes and the Pharisees had a derived authority, but when Jesus talked, people listened. They were drawn to him like moths to a flame. Jesus claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. Now, those were extraordinary claims. C.S. Lewis said, you are faced with a, a trilemma. When it comes to Jesus Christ, you have one of three choices. You can either say that Jesus was a, a good man, but a madman, or you can say that he was a devil from hell, or you can say he was the Son of God. But those are the only options open to you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that he really was who he claimed to be. It is the seal upon his person, upon his identity, upon his deity. So the resurrection is of first importance, Paul says, because it proves to us that there is a God. It proves to us that Jesus really is who he claimed to be. It's the seal upon not only his person, but upon his work. Jesus had said all along, from the beginning of his ministry, the whole way to the end, that he had come into this world for what purpose? To save sinners. He said, I have not come to save those who are healthy, but I have come as the great physician to save those who are sick. 
Jesus had told his disciples that even though he was the Messiah of God, he was going to go to Jerusalem, he was going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies, and ultimately he would be crucified and on the third day rise again. Why did he have to die? He had to die in our place. He became sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, as I said, that is a lovely gesture. Jesus saying that he's willing to die in our place to take the punishment that we rightly deserve for our sins upon himself that we might go free. That is a wonderful promise. It is our hope. If you're ever burdened by the weight of sin or by guilt or by shame, those are terrible things. If you've ever experienced shame in your life, somebody has tried to shame you, whether it be a parent or a spouse, shame is a terrible thing. It's a terrible weight to bear. Guilt, likewise, can be a very powerful motivator, but not an easy burden. And Jesus says he's come to remove the shame, to remove the guilt, to give us hope, to give us a new lease on life. That's a wonderful promise, but it's only true if, in fact, his sacrifice was acceptable to the Father. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the evidence that it has been that everything that was necessary to pay the price for your sin and mine and to give us a new lease on life, to wipe the slate clean and to start all over again, we know it's true because of the resurrection. So Easter is the seal on the existence of God, the deity of Christ. It's the seal on Jesus' work upon the cross. It's also the seal on our justification. This is what Paul says in that great letter to the Romans. He said, Jesus was crucified for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, that term justification is a technical term. It's actually a legal term, theological term. What it basically means, though, is to be lined up with God. You've heard me use this illustration before. There are times when you're doing word processing on your computer, and if you want to make the document look neat and tidy, what you do is you blacken in the entire screen and you go to the top and you hit the justify button and all of the margins go flush. Some of you may be reading from a, a portion of the Bible where the margins are flush. That's what it means to be lined up with God. I pointed out in the sermon this past Sunday that it is our tendency as human beings, as part of our fallen nature, to walk apart from God to be distant from God, not to have a right relationship with Him, not to be properly lined up in accord with God. And no matter how hard we try, there's nothing that we can do to get there. There's nothing that we can offer to God as a means of a peace offering that God cannot already provide for Himself. And yet the great message of the Scripture is that Jesus Christ, who kept the law perfectly, having paid the price for us, has made it possible by His death and by His resurrection to be lined up with God, to be brought back into a proper relationship with our Father. So the resurrection is a seal upon our justification. It means it's possible. It's a seal upon our sanctification as well. It means that you and I, as men and women, can now be better than we have been. We can be better than we are. You know, one of the problems with the culture and the message that the culture likes to proclaim to us that we are good people and that we're fine just the way we are is that if we're honest with ourselves and look at our lives, we realize we're not fine the way we are. 
We know that deep down inside. When I snap at my wife or get impatient with the children or get frustrated with a coworker, I don't want someone telling me, oh, you're fine just the way you are. Because deep down inside, I know I'm not fine just the way I am. There is a part of me that longs to be better, to treat people better than I have treated them to treat them with respect and with dignity. Isn't that something that our culture and indeed our nation needs right now? But where does the power to do that come from? The very things I wanna do, I do not do, Paul says. And the very things I hate, these are the things I find myself doing, oh, wretched man that I am. We've all felt like that. So where does the hope come from? Where does the power, the wherewithal come from to live a life that is better than the one we have had? It comes from Jesus Christ. It comes from the power of his resurrection. You know, it's interesting. The New Testament, the Apostle Paul in particular, describes Jesus as the second Adam, as the new Adam. Now, why is Jesus as the second Adam so important? It's because he is able to do what the first Adam was incapable of doing. What did the first Adam do? The first Adam fell. And when the first Adam fell, you know the story back there in Genesis chapter 3, what he did was he brought all of creation with him. Now, the best way to describe this that I know of is um, the picture of a mountain climber going up a great mountain like the Matterhorn. Mountain climbers go up. There normally is a, a lead, a guide at the top. And then there are all the mountain climbers. And what's interesting is they're all tethered together. And so this is the picture of the first Adam. He, he's our father. And he's making his way up the mountain. And we're all tethered together. But when the first man falls, what happens? He pulls everyone else down along with him. And that is exactly what happened with Adam. Theologians refer to this as the federal headship of Adam. Now, as Americans, we understand this a little bit. A federal government is a government in which there are representatives who act on our behalf. When you elect members to Congress, to the House, or to the Senate, they make decisions. Now, they are your representatives, but they make decisions on your behalf. And those decisions affect you. You elect somebody to Congress, and they go and they vote to raise your taxes. Does that affect you? You better believe it. On the other hand, if Congress decides to lower taxes, does that affect you? You better believe it. The actions of your representative affect you. So when Adam, our father in the faith, our first representative fell and took us all with him, that affected us. We were OS positive as a consequence. But the New Testament describes Jesus as the second Adam because it was as though you and I had been falling. We were tethered together with Jesus Christ now by faith in him. But as we began to fall, instead of pulling him with us, it's like the lead guide taking his pickaxe and driving it into the side of the mountain and holding fast. So even though we were following, he held fast. And because he held fast, we were ultimately saved. And because we have been saved and united to him, his power, his life, his resurrected power now resides in us, and we can begin to live a different kind of life. But that's only true, you see, if the resurrection really happened. 
Here's something else the resurrection does for us, which is why it's so important. It is the seal on eternal life. In John chapter 14, Jesus was preparing to leave his disciples. Now, they had been warned about this over the course of the previous three years, but somehow they just refused to believe it. You recall Peter up there at Caesarea Philippi said, God forbid this must never happen to you. And so even though the crucifixion was about to take place, even though Jesus was about to be arrested, even though their dreams were about to be shattered, the disciples remained blissfully unaware. And so Jesus began to speak to them in John chapter 14 to give them words of comfort, words of promise that were designed to steal them and carry them through the dark days ahead. That section of John's gospel is commonly referred to as the farewell discourse because these are some of the final words spoken by Jesus to his disciples just prior to his death. And one of the things that Jesus said to his disciples was that I am going away but I'm going to prepare a place for you. That where I am, there you may be also. Those are some of the most comforting words in all of Scripture, to know that Jesus Christ has gone away, but he's gone away for why? For what purpose? To prepare a place for us. We're not left comfortless. We're not left as orphans. Christ said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I will come back and take you to be with me, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, that is a wonderful promise. I had a parishioner who once said to me that he loved living in the low country of South Carolina. It was such a beautiful place that he had to confess he had a hard time imagining how heaven could be any better. And I said to him, that's because you've had a good life. If you've had a good life here on earth, heaven may not seem too much of an attraction to you. But many people, their lives have not been good. They've been difficult, lives of suffering, lives of, of challenge and heartbreak. And to know that God has gone to prepare a place for us, and even those of us who've had relatively good life, it's not a life that is free from trouble. Let's face it, folks. Even the most healthy person will eventually wear out their bodies will give up one day. We're living a lot longer than previous generations. It's true, but nobody lives forever here on earth. As I like to say, nobody's getting out of here alive. And isn't it comforting to know that God has gone to prepare a place for us, a place where he himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That is a wonderful promise. It gives us hope. It gives us encouragement in the midst of life's challenges. But it is only true if Jesus rose from the dead. And finally, the resurrection is the seal on judgment. When the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17 went to Athens, this was one of the messages that he proclaimed to the Athenians, to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers with whom he debated. He said that one day, Jesus Christ is going to judge the world. Now, judgment seems to us to be a very negative concept. But listen, folks, judgment is only a bad thing if it's against you. If you go into a court of law accused of something and the judge finds you innocent, the judgment is in your favor, that's not a day of condemnation, that's a day of vindication. Well, we say it every Sunday when we recite the words of the apostles of the Nicene Creed, that Jesus Christ will come again to judge the quick and the dead. But if we are in him, then what that means is that the judgment will not be against us, but in our favor. 
it will indeed be a day of vindication. And everything else that is rotten and broken and foul in this world will one day be set right. Now you think about all of that, the existence of God, the deity of Christ, the, the price for our salvation, the hope of a new relationship with God, the promise that we can live a better life than we have, the hope of life eternal, and the promise that this world will be set right and we will be found innocent in the last day when the books are opened. All of that resides, rests on the foundation of the resurrection. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is a matter of first importance. But here's the problem. It's a matter of first importance, and it's all wonderful, but it only makes sense if it really happened. The Gospels go to great lengths to emphasize the point that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was a physical, bodily resurrection. We need to understand that when the Gospels, when Paul says the resurrection is the grounding of our hope, when he says it is a matter of first importance, he is talking about a miracle. Now, I'm well aware of the fact that we are post-Enlightenment people, that we have a tendency to be skeptical. But if you step back and look at this objectively, most people in the world today, Richard Dawkins and others notwithstanding, most people in the world today do believe that there is a God. Now, they may not necessarily believe in the Christian God, but they are convinced by Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1 that when you look at the world today and the order that exists in the universe— the laws of science, the laws of physics and gravity and so forth, you know instinctively that if there are laws, there must be a lawgiver. But while you can believe that there is a God, that doesn't tell you what kind of a God exists. For that, you need something else, more than just general revelation. You need a special revelation. And that is precisely what we have received in Jesus Christ, who was the Word made flesh. And the hope of the early Christians was that that God who created the universe raised his son from the dead. Now, let's face it. If you can believe in a God who created the universe, raising somebody from the dead is mere child's play. So set aside the skepticism about miracles. That's a whole other topic for another time. If you're interested, uh, read C.S. Lewis's little book on miracles. He deals with that, the skepticism that's associated with our age and miracles. But if you can believe in a God who created the heavens and the earth, really, it shouldn't be too much of a leap to believe in a God who raised somebody from the dead. The only question is, did it happen? This much is clear. The early disciples were absolutely convinced. And the gospel writers, as I said, go to great lengths to emphasize this fact. Uh, we're going to take a look at two passages back-to-back -back in the Gospel of Luke and one from the Gospel of John, and you'll see what I mean. Now keep your finger there in Matthew, the end of Matthew, because we'll come back to it, but skip ahead to Luke chapter 24. This is 
Luke's version of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Each of the gospel writers give a slightly different account. That's not at all surprising either. Uh, actually, I think that the minor differences in these accounts, rather than undermining their credibility, actually testify to their credibility. Police officers will tell you that you can have four different witnesses to the same traffic accident, and when you ask them what happened, you're going to get four slightly different accounts of the same event. In fact, when you get all of the accounts being exactly right, it implies collusion. It implies that they got together and sort of got their stories right. So the very fact that there are minor differences, number of angels at the tomb, for example, or the exact time in the morning when the women showed up, that's not at all surprising. That's exactly what you would expect to find when it comes to an eyewitness account. But in Luke chapter 24, we have the story of that first Easter. And we're told that after Jesus appeared in the early dawn, he greeted two disciples who were on their way to the village of Emmaus. We'll pick up the narrative in Luke chapter 24, verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Uh, this is interesting. This is one of the things that all of the gospels bear witness to, that when Jesus was resurrected, somehow the resurrection changed him. Now, he still had a physical body. That's the whole point of what we're talking about here. But somehow the resurrection had transformed him, hardly made him recognizable to those who had known him. And so we're told in verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, notice it's in the past tense, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Whatever hope they had had in Jesus by this point had died. It was placed in the tomb along with his body. We had hoped. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Said that he was going to rise on the third day, but here it is the third day, no news. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen visions of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now, if you listen to the tenor of this conversation, it's pretty clear they're skeptical. They're filled with confusion and anxiety and despair. But there's no hope here. There's, there's no anticipation that what the women said was actually true. And then you have these words, verse 25, and Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Here's a picture of Jesus walking with these people, conversing with these people. There was no sense that they had that this was some sort of disembodied spirit. There was no sense that this was some ghostly apparition. As far as they could tell, this was just another man journeying on the road. And furthermore, he was somebody who sat down at table with them. Now skip ahead to verse 33. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and he's appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that he was a what? A spirit. Here he was, having walked along the road with them, here he was, having appeared to Simon Peter, and when he appears, their natural tendency is to assume that it's a spirit, it's a ghost, and he says to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, they just couldn't believe it could be this great, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Now that's an emphasis on Jesus' bodily resurrection. He ate, he walked, he communed with them. And of course, the most familiar example of Jesus' bodily resurrection, and the proof of all of this is in John chapter 20. It's the account of doubting Thomas. My favorite, really, in many respects, of all the apostles. It's a marvelous story. You know it. John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came so the disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I'll tell you one of the reasons why I love Thomas's reaction is because it is such a naked reaction. It is such an honest reaction. This is no sort of sanctified, holier-than-thou response this is the response of a man who is broken. And he's been told that the Lord is alive again, but he doesn't believe it. It's such an honest reaction. Some years ago, I saw a documentary on the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And they used the famous Zapruder film. Now, some of you have seen the Zapruder film. There was a man actually there that day, 1963, in Dallas, 
And he was filming the president's entourage as the motorcade came down. And he actually caught the assassination on film. Now, if you have seen the Zapruder film, uh, it is a powerful thing. I will tell you, it is very graphic. It is exceedingly graphic to see a person literally killed on film. This is not made up. This is the actual event. And when you get close to it and look at it, as this documentary did, frame by frame as the film went by, you come away with no doubt whatsoever that the president was killed. It's a tragic event. And there you have Jackie Kennedy with that blood still on her dress when Lyndon Johnson is sworn in as president of the United States, her husband's successor, her husband, who had just been assassinated hours before. Now, there was no doubt in the minds of anyone who witnessed that event, and no doubt in the mind of Jackie Kennedy, the first lady of the United States, that the president of the United States was dead. If only a few days later, three days later, people began to say that John F. Kennedy was alive again, alive and well, and greeting people and having meals, who would have believed it? What would have been the natural reaction of the people who experienced that tragic event in Dallas in 1963? They would have said, I will not believe it unless I can see him and shake his hand and examine the wounds, I will not believe it. That is the reaction you see of Thomas. He had seen the crucifixion. He had seen Jesus' body drained of its lifeblood, taken down from the cross and put in the tomb. And he said, unless I can see for myself, I'm not going to believe it. Folks, that is an honest reaction. Anybody who says that these accounts are made up has never read the story of Doubting Thomas. And yet Thomas would go on to become a great witness for the gospel. Some traditions hold that he went the whole way to India and preach the gospel to the people there. We've got to come to terms with the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. We cannot get into our mind that the spirit of Jesus somehow rose in the hearts of his disciples, that this was some sort of ghostly apparition. The ground of all our hope is that the one who was crucified and buried on the third day by the power of the God who created the heavens and the earth raised him to new life again. And because Jesus Christ has been raised, you and I will one day be raised as well. That is our hope. So what is the evidence for the physical and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? I preached on this the last Easter. So if you really want to get the full details of all of this, you can go back and listen to that sermon if you're so inclined, or if you're bored, or you've got insomnia, you can go back and listen to the Easter sermon from this past year. But let me suggest to you just five lines of evidence that have to be taken into consideration when we look at the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The first line of evidence is the most obvious. It's the empty tomb. It's the empty tomb. This is what I call the proverbial smoking gun. You know, it's interesting, no one, even Jesus' detractors, even skeptics today, deny the fact that the tomb was empty. Nobody denies the fact that for whatever reason, 
Now, some people may doubt that it was a miracle of God, but nobody disputes the fact that the tomb was empty on that first day of the week. When the women went there, when the disciples arrived there later, for whatever reason, the body, which had been placed there only hours before, was missing. Now, we all know that dead bodies don't get up and walk out of tombs, which means that somebody must have taken the body. Barring the fact that God did not raise him from the dead, we can only assume that somebody must have moved the body because the body couldn't move itself. Now, that's what many people argue. In fact, you see that here in Matthew. That's exactly what the Jewish religious leaders paid the guards to tell the people, that his disciples came while we were asleep, which doesn't say much about them as guards, but his disciples came and stole the body. Now, I suppose, theoretically, it's possible that somebody stole the body of Jesus Christ and perpetuated this falsehood that he had been raised from the dead. But if that's true, you have to stop and ask yourself, well, who had the means and who had the motive? In order for somebody to be convicted, you have to be able to prove both, means and motive. They had the ability and they had the desire. So who in the world had the means or the motive to steal the body of Jesus Christ. When you look at it, there are really only three alternatives. One, the Roman authorities could have stolen the body. There's no doubt about the fact that Pontius Pilate, as governor of Judea, had the power, the means at his disposal, to remove the body of Jesus Christ. But while Pilate had the means and the Romans had the power to do so, you have to pause and ask yourself, what could have been their possible motive? As we've already seen when we looked at the trial of Jesus before the Roman governor, one of the things that Pilate wanted to do was to release Jesus. He found no fault in Christ. But it was when the Jewish religious leaders said that Jesus claimed to be a king and that they had no king but Caesar, and that if Pilate was willing to acknowledge Jesus, then he was denying Caesar. He was no friend of Caesar. It's then that fear gripped the heart of the governor, and he condemned Jesus to death. Things were getting out of hand. He had to prove himself loyal to Caesar. It would have been a catastrophe for Pontius Pilate if Jesus Christ was said to be alive again. It would have been a disaster for him as the Roman governor. So what would have been the best thing for him to do if he had taken the body and all of a sudden this falsehood was now spreading that that one who had been crucified was actually a Messiah back from the dead, the real king? The best thing for Pontius Pilate to do would have been to bring out the body. It's that old line from, you know, the English comedy, Bring out your dead. Monty Python, bring out your dead. That would have been the best thing for the Romans to do. And yet what's interesting is the Romans never produced the body. And this falsehood, which is what the Jews called it, continued to grow and to spread until it eventually, within the short span of 300 years, brought the Roman Empire to its knees. So if the Romans had the means but not the motive, who else? Well, the Jewish religious leaders. They had the means. As I pointed out to you last week, I think it was the Jewish religious leaders who actually had temple guards standing watch over the tomb rather than Roman guards. 
I think Pontius Pilate, when he said, you have a guard, go ahead and make the tomb secure. What I think he was saying is you have your own guards. It was the temple guards, after all, that had arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to begin with. So they certainly had the means at their disposal, and they had a great deal of influence over Pontius Pilate, as we've seen. They had the means to go ahead and remove the body. But like the Romans, you have to ask, what could have been their possible motivation for doing so? Again, that would have spread this falsehood that Jesus had been raised from the dead, and that's the last thing that they wanted. The best thing for them to do was to likewise bring forth the body. And yet what's interesting is that neither the Romans nor the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the member of the Sanhedrin, ever brought forth the body. And the problem for them was that this was the only messianic movement of the first century in which they tried to kill the Messiah, and yet the movement continued to spread because his followers claimed that he had been raised. And they could have put an end to this immediately by simply producing the body, which for whatever reason they never did. Now that leaves only one other group that could have had a possible motive for removing the body. And that of course is the disciples, which is what the Jewish religious leaders told the guards to say to the people. That the reason that the tomb was empty was because his disciples came and stole the body while we were asleep. Now, is that a possibility? Well, it's certainly a possibility. But while the disciples had the motive for doing so, they didn't have the means. They didn't have the power. They would have had to overcome the guards. I mean, how in the world could they have crept in there with the guards there, even if the guards were asleep, pulled back a two-ton stone and stolen the body away without the guards ever waking up? And while they may not have had the means, I'm not entirely sure they had the motive either. One of the things that you'll notice, and we'll take a look at this in just a moment, is that the disciples were fearful. And even if they did steal the body away, let's, let's look at it this way. Even if they did steal the body away and wanted to perpetuate this falsehood that Jesus had been raised from the dead, would they have really gone out and died for that lie? I mean, people will die for the truth, but very rarely will people die for something that they know is not true. So when you're looking at the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have to deal with the empty tomb. For whatever reason, that tomb was empty. And those who had the primary means of removing the body and could have put down these false rumors that Jesus had been raised never did. That's the first line of evidence. Here's the second line of evidence. It's the grave clothes. The tomb was not quite empty. It's true, the body was not there, but there was something that was left behind. And the way that John tells the story is particularly compelling. A turn, if you will, to John chapter 20. And let's listen to how John describes the events of that first Easter. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone had been taken away. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that is John, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. I love this. It's one of those little details that just adds integrity to the account. 
So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb, but both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Can't you just picture it? John, who is young and svelte, and Peter, who's a little older, he's got a little bit of a, of a, a paunch, a little bit of a, a heavy set fellow, and they're running together and John, the young man, runs ahead. And he gets to the tomb first. And verse five says, stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Maybe he was young, he was fearful, anxious, whatever it is, he did not go in. Verse six, Peter finally arrives, winded, exhausted, and impetuous Peter, as always, pushes poor John aside and goes into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there. That's the part that was still there, the linen cloths. Verse 7, and the faith face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. John finally musters the courage after John, after Peter bounds into the tomb. He musters his courage. He goes in, and he saw, and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now, what's key here? Are the linen cloths. When Peter got into the tomb, he saw that the body was not there, but the linen cloths, which had been used to wrap the body of Jesus, which was the Jewish custom in the first century, were there. But what puzzled him was the fact that they were not scattered all over the tomb. Now think about this. If somebody had come to the tomb to steal the body, they would have done one of two things. They would have either taken the body, wrapped as it was, and ferreted it out of there as quickly as possible, or they may have unwrapped the body, and bodies in those days were wrapped very tightly, almost like an Egyptian mummy, these long strips, swaddling cloths, the same swaddling cloths that were used to wrap Jesus as a baby there in Bethlehem. Same kind of idea. Wrapping the body tightly, and then there would have been spices and ointments between the linen cloths. So the body was tightly wrapped, but the face, the head would have been wrapped, but the face would have been left by itself. So you could see the face, but the rest of the body tightly wrapped. Now, if you unwrap those linen cloths like a mummy, they would have been scattered all over the tomb. But what Peter notices, and this is the part that puzzles him so much, is that the body wasn't there, but the linen cloths were, and the linen cloths were lying just as they had been wrapping a body, except as, as though the body passed through the linen cloths and disappeared, but the cloths were still there in their place, perfectly wrapped. And he's puzzled by that. And here's where it gets really interesting. This is borne out in the Greek text. If you look at verse 4, we're told both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, and stooping to look in, he saw. John didn't go in, but he stooped, looked in, and saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Now, Greek is a very rich language much more so than English. The word that is translated in verse 5 as saw in Greek is the word blepo. 
It is a Greek word that means to glance, to give a casual glance to something, not to examine, just a casual glance. He just glanced into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths, but he didn't think any more of it. Verse 6 says, then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw, same English word, the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head. What's interesting is that in verse 6, the word saw is a different Greek word. It's not blepo, to give a casual glance. It is the Greek word theoreo. It's the word from which we get theory. It's to theorize. He looks at the same thing that John looks at, but he looks at it and he's puzzled. He can't understand why the grave clothes are there like that. He's, he's puzzled by that. And then finally, we're told in verse 8, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw but here, the word saw is a third Greek word. All these words are translated into English as the same word saw, but the Greek word here is oreo. And it means to see, but to see with understanding. So when John first gets to the tomb, he glances in, sees the evidence, doesn't make any sense. Peter goes in, sees the evidence, and is troubled by it. Something here doesn't fit. Finally, John goes in. Peter must have said something to him about the grave clothes, and a light goes on for John, and he sees and he understands. That's the second line of evidence. It's a powerful way that the gospel describes this. Here's the third line of evidence. It's the presence of the women. One of the most extraordinary things about the gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all name women as the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal to us because we live in the 21st century and we have women monarchs. We have women who are vice presidents of the United States, head of the national security. We're accustomed to that sort of thing. But you have to understand that this was a first century Jewish culture, a first century Greco-Roman culture, and women did not have the kind of place in society that they do today. In fact, women were not even permitted in first century Jewish society to give testimony in a court of law because their testimony was regarded as untrustworthy. Now, incidentally, and we don't have time to go into this, Christianity would be the movement that would change that forever. But if you want to get a picture of how women were regarded, you can turn to John chapter 4, and you have the story of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman. You know the story. He goes to the well, and he meets this woman from Samaria. Now, you know the Samaritans were the enemies, the ancient enemies of the Jews. The Jews regarded Samaritans as half-breeds. They were worse even than Gentiles. But what is interesting is that the disciples have gone off to buy some food. Jesus is sitting there at the well talking to this woman. When the disciples returned, John chapter 4, verse 27 says, they were startled to see that he was talking not to a Samaritan, but that he was talking to a woman. Because in first century Jewish society, men did not speak to women in public, not even their own wives or daughters. Now, if the stories of Jesus' resurrection were created 
created out of whole cloth with the purpose of deceiving people. If the disciples had made up these stories, but they wanted them to be accepted by that first century culture, the last thing they would have done was name women as the first apostles, if you will. The first evangelists, the first witnesses to these events, because in that first century society, that would have been enough for most people to disregard these accounts altogether. And yet in all four of the gospel accounts, the women play a major role. The women are the first to believe. The women bear witness to the disciples. Now, why? Why, if these stories were made up, would they do that? The obvious answer is because they weren't made up. This is the way it actually happened. The women are named in a prominent role because this is actually how the events unfolded. Here's the fourth line of evidence. The change that was wrought in the life of the disciples. In John chapter 20, verse 19, when Mary Magdalene returns from the tomb to tell the disciples, where are they? We're told they are behind bolted and locked doors for fear of the Jewish religious leaders. They had run away there on the night of Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they had been hiding ever since for fear that the authorities were going to come and do to them what had just been done to Jesus. But you turn a few pages in the history of the church and in the history of the scriptures to Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, and lo and behold, you find those same disciples who were locked behind bolted and barred doors for fear of their own lives suddenly out preaching to the very same religious leaders who had condemned Jesus to death. And in Acts chapter 5, suffering physically for it because they are actually brutally beaten by the Sanhedrin. Now, what accounts for that kind of a change? And we know that these men did go on to suffer. Every single one of the disciples, according to church tradition and according to secular history, died a martyr's death with the exception of John. And even he died as an old man, having been exiled for many years on the Isle of Patmos. Now, if these men knew this was a falsehood, that this was a lie, do you really think they would have endured that kind of suffering, pain, and death? As I said earlier, people will suffer and die for something they know to be true, but they will not suffer and die for something they know to be false. And yet there was this extraordinary change that took place in the lives of Peter, Andrew, James, John, and all the rest. Here's the fifth line of evidence when you consider the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that is the unlikely rise and spread of Christianity. Christianity is, in many respects, my friends, the greatest success story in the history of the world. The early Christians were a beleaguered group. They were a persecuted group. Under a whole succession of Roman emperors, they were thrown out of the Jewish synagogue. They were hated and despised. They were the dregs of society. And as I said, the Jesus movement was the only messianic movement of the first century in which the Romans killed the Messiah you know, you cut off the head, the body eventually dies. They cut off the head, they killed the Messiah, and the movement continued to run. It was like a wildfire. The harder they tried to stamp it out, the more it continued to spread until it filled the whole earth. Here's how two historians describe the event. 
Edward Gibbon, in his epic, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, said, a candid but rational inquiry into the progress and establishment of Christianity may be considered as a very essential part of the history of the Roman Empire. Bear in mind that Edward Gibbon's The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire is considered to be one of the greatest works of history ever produced. He says, while that great body, the Roman Empire, was invaded by open violence or undermined by slow decay, a pure and humble religion gently insinuated itself into the minds of men. It grew up in silence and obscurity. It derived new vigor from opposition. And it finally erected the triumphant banner of the cross on the ruins of the old capital. And let me tell you something, folks, that happened in the short span of 300 years. In an age before the internet, in an age before global travel, that's the blink of an eye. And he goes on to say, nor was the influence of Christianity confined to the period or to the limits of the Roman Empire. After a revolution of 13 or 14th century, that religion is still professed by the nations of Europe, the most distinguished portion of humankind in art and learning as well as in arms. By the industry and zeal of the Europeans, it has been widely diffused to the most distant shores of Asia and Africa, and by the means of their colonies, it has been firmly established from Canada to Chile in a world unknown to the ancients. There's no movement like that in the history of the world. Here's how a more recent historian put it, Will Durant, in his epic work, The Story of Civilization. He said, there is no greater drama in human record than the sight of a few Christians scorned or oppressed by a succession of emperors, bearing all their trials with a fierce tenacity, multiplying quietly, building order while their enemies generated chaos, fighting the sword with the word, brutality with hope, and at last defeating the strongest state that history has known. Caesar and Christ had met in the arena, and Christ had won. Sir Edward Clark is regarded as perhaps the greatest barrister in late Victorian England, noted for uh, winning a number of high-profile cases, even cross-examining the Prince of Wales. And here's what he said about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said, as a lawyer, I have made a prolonged study of the evidences for the first Easter day. And to me, the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again in the high court, I have secured the verdict on evidence not so compelling. As a lawyer, I accept it as the testimony of men to the facts that they were able to substantiate. As the old hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' death and righteousness. But it's also built, my friends, on the rock-solid fact that on that first day of the week, the creator of the heavens and the earth acted in history, in time and space, and brought the dead body of Jesus Christ back to life again. He broke forth from that tomb, and the world to this day has never been able to contain him. And it's not just the testimony, you see, of the disciples or of those women. It is the testimony of millions upon millions of people down through the centuries to the present day. Millions of people, myself included, who will tell you that we have encountered the risen Jesus Christ. 
and that he has changed our lives and that we will never be the same again. It is a matter of first importance. And if you've never done it, I encourage you to do better than John. I encourage you, like Peter, to come to the tomb, go inside, look at the evidence, and realize, as the angel said, he is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Next week, we are going to take a look at the very last act in Matthew's great drama of the life and ministry of Jesus, and that is the Great Commission. It's interesting, Matthew does not end the story of Jesus with the resurrection, or even with the ascension, Jesus' departure from this earth. He ends it with Jesus' charge to his disciples, a charge to you and to me, to go into all the world and preach this good news and make disciples of all men. So come and join us as we finish up the Gospel of Matthew next week. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that we are the people of the empty tomb. We thank you for Jesus' death upon the cross in our place, but we thank you that that suffering, that pain, that agony, that price was accepted by the Father that it was accepted by you, and you have proven that by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Make us a people who are bold to go forth in this hope, to be courageous, and if necessary, to suffer all things for the sake of him who suffered for us. For we once were dead, but have been raised to new life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. God bless you, and we'll see you either around campus or next week. Take care.